Part One, Chapter Three of the Tree of Heaven by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part One, Peace, Chapter Three. And it all happened as she had foreseen. Anthony came home early because it was a fine afternoon. He made the kind of joke that calamity always forced from him by some perversion of his instincts. When is an ash tree not an ash tree? When it's a tree of heaven. He was exquisitely polite to Granny and the aunties, and his manner to Frances, which she openly complained of, was, he said, what a woman brought on herself when she reserved her passion for her children, her sentiment for trees of heaven, and her mockery for her devoted husband. I suppose we can have some tennis now, said Auntie Louie. Certainly, said Anthony, we can and we shall. He tried not to look at Frances. And Auntie Edie became automatically animated. I can't serve for nuts, but I can run. Who's going to play with me? I am, said Anthony. He was perfect. The game of tennis had an unholy and terrible attraction for Auntie Louie and Auntie Edie. Neither of them could play. But, whereas Auntie Louie thought that she could play and took tennis seriously, Auntie Edie knew that she couldn't and took it as a joke. Auntie Louie stood tall and rigid and immovable. She planted herself like a man close up to the net, where Anthony wanted to be and where he should have been. But Auntie Louie said she was no good if you put her to play back. She couldn't be expected to take every ball he missed. When Auntie Louie called out play, she meant to send a nervous shudder through her opponents, shattering their morale. She went through all the gestures of an annihilating service that for some reason never happened. She said the net was too low, and that spoiled her eye. And when she missed her return, it was because Anthony had looked at her and put her off. Still, Aunt Louie's attitude had this advantage, that it kept her quiet in one place where Anthony could dance round and round her. But Auntie Edie played in little nervous runs and slides and rushes. She flung herself with screams of excitement against the ball, her partner, and the net, and she brandished her racket in a dangerous manner. The oftener she missed, the funnier it was to Auntie Edie. She had been pretty when she was young, and seventeen years ago her cries and tumbles and collisions had been judged amusing, and Auntie Edie thought they were amusing still. Anthony had never had the heart to undeceive her, so that when Anthony was there, Auntie Edie still went about setting a standard of gaiety for other people to live up to. And still she was astonished that they never did, that other people had no sense of humor. Therefore Frances was glad when Anthony told her that he had asked Mr. Parsons, the children's tutor, and young Norris and young Vereker from the office to come round for tennis at six, and that dinner must be put off till half-past eight all was well the evening would be sacred to anthony and the young men the illusion of worry passed and frances's real world of happiness stood firm and as frances's mind being a thoroughly healthy mind refused to entertain any dreary possibility for long together so it was simply unable to foresee downright calamity even when it had been pointed out to her for instance that nicky should really have chosen the day of the party for an earache the worst earache he had ever had he appeared at tea-time carried in merry nana's arms and with his head tied up in one of mr jervis's cricket scarves as he approached his family he tried hard not to look pathetic 
and at the sight of her little son her whole brilliant world of happiness was shattered around frances nicky darling she said why didn't you tell me it was really aching i didn't know said nicky he never did know the precise degree of pain that distinguished the beginning of a genuine earache from that of a sham one and he felt that to palm off a sham earache on his mother for a real one was somehow a sneaky thing to do and while his ear went on stabbing him nicky did his best to explain you see i never know whether it's aching or whether it's only going to ache it began a little teeny bit when the funny man made me laugh and i didn't see the magic lantern and i didn't have any of rosalind's cake it came on when i was biting the sugar off and it was aching in both ears at once it was said nicky a jolly sell for me at that moment nicky's earache jabbed upwards at his eyelids and cut them and shook tears out of them but nicky's mouth refused to take any part in the performance though he let his father carry him upstairs and as he lay on the big bed in his mother's room he said he thought he could bear it if he had jane pussy to lie beside him and his steam engine anthony went back into the garden to fetch jane he spent an hour looking for her wandering in utter misery through the house and through the courtyard and stables and the kitchen garden he looked for jane in the hothouse and the cucumber frames and under the rhubarb and on the scullery roof and in the water butt it was just possible that on a day of complete calamity jane should have slithered off the scullery roof into the water butt the least he could do was to find jane since nicky wanted her and in the end it turned out that jane had been captured in her sleep treacherously by auntie emmy and she had escaped maddened with terror of the large nervous incessantly caressing hands she had climbed into the highest branch of the tree of heaven and crouched there glaring unhappy damn the cat said anthony to himself it was not jane he meant he was distressed irritated absurdly upset because he would have to go back to nicky without jane because he couldn't get nicky what he wanted in that moment anthony loved nicky more than any of them he loved him almost more than francis nicky's earache ruined the fine day he confided in young vereker i wouldn't bother he said if the little chap wasn't so plucky about it quite so sir said young vereker it was young mr vereker who found jane who eventually recaptured her young mr vereker made himself glorious by climbing up at the risk of his neck and in his new white flannels into the high branches of the tree of heaven to bring jane down and when anthony thanked him he said don't mention it sir it's only a trifle though it was as mr norris said palpable that the flannels were ruined still if he hadn't found that confounded cat they would never humanly speaking have had their tennis the aunties did not see mr vereker climbing into the tree of heaven they did not see him playing with mr parsons and anthony and mr norris for as soon as the three young men appeared and emmeline and edith began to be interested and emphatic granny said that as they wouldn't see anything more of francis and the children it was no good staying any longer and they'd better be getting back it was as if she knew that they were going to enjoy themselves and was determined to prevent it francis went with them to the bottom of the lane she stood there till the black figures had passed one by one through the white posts on to the heath till in the distance they became small again and harmless and pathetic then she went back to her room where nicky lay in the big bed
Nicky lay in the big bed with Jane on one side of him and his steam engine on the other, and a bag of hot salt against each ear. Now and then a thin wall of sleep slid between him and his earache. Francis sat by the open window and looked out into the garden, where Anthony and Norris played, quietly yet fiercely, against Vereker and Parsons. Francis loved the smell of fresh grass that the balls and the men's feet struck from the lawn. She loved the men's voices subdued to Nicky's sleep, and the sound of their padding feet, the thud of the balls on the turf, the smacking and thwacking of the rackets. She loved every movement of Anthony's handsome, energetic body. She loved the quick, supple bodies of the young men, the tense poise and earnest activity of their adolescence. But it was not Vereker or Parsons or Norris that she loved or that she saw. It was Michael, Nicholas, and John, whose adolescence was foreshadowed in those athletic forms wearing white flannels. Michael, Nicky, and John in white flannels playing fiercely. When young Vereker drew himself to his full height, when his young body showed lean and slender as he raised his arms for his smashing service, it was not young Vereker, but Michael, serious and beautiful. When young Parsons leaped high into the air, and thus returned Anthony's facetious skyscraper on the volley, that was Nicky. When young Norris turned and ran at the top of his speed and overtook the ball on its rebound from the baseline where young Vereker had planted it, when, as by a miracle, he sent it backwards over his own head, paralyzing Vereker and Parsons with sheer astonishment, that was John. Her vision passed. She was leaning over Nicky now, Nicky so small in the big bed. Nicky had moaned. Does it count if I make that little noise, mummy? It sort of lets the pain out. No, my lamb, it doesn't count. Is the pain very bad? Yes, mummy, awful. It's going faster and faster, and it bizzes. And when it doesn't bizz, it thumps. He paused. I think, perhaps, I could bear it better if I sat on your knee. Francis thought she could bear it better, too. It would be good for Nicky that he should grow into beautiful adolescence and a perfect manhood. But it was better for her that he should be a baby still, that she should have him on her knee and hold him close to her, that she should feel his adorable body press quivering against her body and the heat of his earache penetrating her cool flesh. For now she was lost to herself and utterly absorbed in Nicky and her agony became a sort of ecstasy, as if actually she bore his pain. It was Anthony who could not stand it. Anthony had come in on his way to his dressing room. As he looked at Nicky, his handsome, hawk-like face was drawn with a dreadful, yearning, ineffectual pity. Frances had discovered that her husband could both be and look pathetic. He had wanted her to be sorry for him, and she was sorry for him because his male pity was all agony. There was no ecstasy in it of any sort at all. Nicky was far more her flesh and blood than he was Anthony's. Nicky stirred in his mother's lap. He raised his head. And when he saw that queer look on his father's face, he smiled at it. He had to make the smile himself, for it refused to come of its own accord. He made it carefully so that it shouldn't hurt him but he made it so well that it hurt Francis and Anthony. I never saw a child bear pain as Nicky does, Francis said in her pride. If he can bear it, I can't, said Anthony, and he stalked into his dressing room and shut the door on himself. 
Daddy minds more than you do, said Francis. At that, Nicky sat up. His eyes glittered and his cheeks burned with the fever of his earache. I don't mind, he said. Really and truly, I don't mind. I don't care if my ear does ache. It's my eyes is crying, not me. At nine o'clock, when they were all sitting down to dinner, Nicky sent for his father and mother. Something had happened. Crackers, he said, had been going off in his ears, and they hurt most awfully. And when it had done cracking, his earache had gone away, and Dorothy had brought him a trumpet from Rosalind's party, and Michael a tin train. And Michael had given him the train, and he wouldn't take the trumpet instead. Oughtn't Michael to have had the trumpet? And when they left him, tucked up in his cot in the night nursery, he called them back again. It was a jolly sell for me, wasn't it? said Nicky and he laughed. End of part one, chapter three, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.